I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. This week, I was blown away by my conversation with Glenn Yelton. Glenn is so knowledgeable and has been building strategies around impact for decades, first as an RIA and now as head of ESG Client Strategies North America at Invesco. It was great to talk about how, even with a fixed income strategy, that you could achieve impact. And given his history in the space, we spent some time defining terms and even talked about the evolution of terms as we look to the future of ESG and impact investing. Like so many of my guests before, his journey into this work is fascinating and not what you would normally expect. And I was equally excited to connect given that he's located in Tennessee, another flyover state that is often not associated with impact investing, let alone at the tip of the spear of innovation within this space. Yeah, Bryce, this is an accidental career for me. I'm just going <laughs> to open with that. Um, and I've spent over two decades, in, 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 and again, by accident, in ESG and impact investing. I actually grew up near here um, in a town called Roan Mountain, Tennessee, uh, right on the North Carolina border. And um, like ESG investing, which is um, celebrating its 50th year this year with uh, the anniversary of the launch of the, the first PAX fund back in 1971, um, I've been around for several decades, pretty much the equivalent there. So growing up in Roan Mountain um, back in the, the 70s and the 80s, went to a high school that had, um, my graduating class was well under 100. So it was like a seven through 12. So think small town, mountain, Appalachia, no red lights, just a couple of stop signs. And growing up there, uh, for me, being very immersed in the outdoors, I had the Appalachian Trail basically in my backyard. Um, I grew up with this appreciation of, of nature and, and, hmm. and the creation that we're surrounded and the stewardship requirement that we're, we're sort of tasked with. And I, I get out of high school, I go to college, um, I smoked a lot of dope to be quite honest, <laughs> lost every scholarship I had by the time I was a sophomore in college. And I, I had this, this, this inflection point in my life, Bryce, where I'm like, what am, what am I supposed to do? I've lost my way on one level, and here I'm trying to figure out where I, I go next. And my father was a mechanic, so I ended up being a mechanic. Hmm. And I, I was doing that for a couple of years, and I was working there. I was uh, working on engines and, and doing repairs, and um, I got really bored one day and, uh, my father had been in the military. I got really bored and decided to join the army. So my advice is if you're a bored 23 year old, don't <laughs> join the army. Um, watch television, go for a walk, do something. Don't go talk to your local recruiter. Uh, but this was in the <laughs> early nineties. And so Bryce, I joined the army and I had this intention of being a mechanic in the army, but the army as is, as it's want, had a different idea. And I became mm -hmm. an interrogator. So they trained me on interrogation, um, on how to collect human intelligence data. And I did that for my enlistment. I got out. And uh, so there is a point to the story. It's a bit long-winded on the accidental career. But I got out as an interrogator. And there's not a lot of demand for ex-interrogators outside of the government or law enforcement. Uh, so I decided to do something completely different because uh, a bit of a rebel streak, I guess. So I did competitive intelligence consulting for a while. Started a consulting business. Oh, doing primary intelligence data collection. And while I'm doing this, I, I had a friend who was a financial planner. And he and I would get together for lunch every week or two and, and sort of talk about the challenges he was facing. And he also was at an inflection point in his career. He'd, um, he was very much rooted in his faith. 
And so he was doing financial planning using a, a lot of the uh, Christian stewardship principles. And he wanted to do that in his asset allocation in the portfolios that he was building. He just didn't know how. Hmm. And so Bryce, he and I got to talking about this challenge that he was facing on data. And here I was collecting information. I'm like, maybe we could do this. Maybe I could help you do data collection. And so never having done financial analysis, never having done research on, on companies like this, I, I took on this task for, for my friend and took a look at a company called Dollar General. And I picked it because it was a Tennessee-based company back in the, the late 90s. This would have been around 1999. And I took a look at this company, um, and, and whenever I got to looking at Dollar General, at the time they wouldn't accept credit cards because they didn't want their clients, who they knew were lower income, to buy staples on credit. They weren't selling alcohol or tobacco because they didn't want to encourage addictive behaviors. They had uh, GED classes in the back of their, their uh, stores on Fridays for free because they wanted their neighbors to be better. Hmm. And I, I came back to, to my, my friend, to Cardinal Craw, and said, I found a company we could invest in. It, it seems to meet the stewardship, the servant leadership models that you're talking about here. And he goes, that's great. Uh, we probably need 100 more companies to invest in to get a diversified portfolio. I have zero idea how to run a portfolio, so we need to hire somebody. Um, and by the way, I can't pay you unless we start a company. So we started a registered investment advisory firm. So 20 years ago, completely by accident, by as I did a friend a favor, I ended up in this, this, this area. And for me, Bryce, that was satisfying. So if you think about mm. impact investing, there's this, this thing beyond the finance, beyond uh, the monies themselves that we're exploring. And for me, the proof point that it was a real valid concept came as a result of that. Because when we opened this RIA, we had $3 million in AUM, basically. In Johnson City, Tennessee, population 55,000, we had $85 million in AUM 18 months later. And the average account size was well under $100,000. So that told me there this, this group out there, Bryce, who wanted to do more with their money than just earn a return. And that was an insight that has driven the next 20 years. The fact That's that amazing. it can be more than just a portfolio balance statement. It can be more than just a mutual fund. There's, there's clients actually do care about what their money supports and what the outcomes are. So, and we can unpack well, folks, that a little bit more here. So. We're, we can be done with the pot. I mean, like you literally just said it all. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but seriously, like that is beautiful. And, and one of the reasons we started season three uh, around conscious construction of dynamic portfolios is really trying to break down different asset classes and how different funds and fund managers come at this uniquely and personally, but are building really unique products because what we found, even you know, in the work that we've done at Access Ventures or in partnership with people across the country, there's still, even though you've been doing it for 20 years or more, ESG around 50 years now, there still is a, uh, a lot of confusion. There um, is. And so I, I would love to, from your perspective, um, help me, because I, I think words matter. And I think one of the things that's really odd about this field is the terms seem to change or morph over time. So, you know, you've got ESG, you've got SRI, you've got impact investing. It depends on who you talk to. Um, you know, and I think, you know, where I am in Louisville, and I don't know how it is in Johnson City, but whenever anybody mentions impact investing, the only reference they have is a small impact strategy at the local community foundation, yeah. a couple million dollars. And it is, it is, it's, it's impactful investing, but it is straight up a PRI. It's program-related investment. It has, it's like a 2% uh, 
loan of the foundation that would be charitable dollars anyways. So that's how local investors, local high net worth individuals, local foundations associate. That is, that's impact investing. So f- for our listeners, from your perspective, wh- what is, you know, what is SRI? What is ESG? What is impact investing? How, how would you define those things? And do they, are they the same? Are they different? Are they distinct? They, they are very distinct. And, and for me, it, it sort of coalesced um, over the past decade a little bit more as these terms have emerged. So if, you, if we continue the story a bit more, so the, the five years at the RIA, I ended up moving from that to, uh, to building a research and ratings program for a, a company that's now part of ISS and spent 10 years actually on the, the data collection side uh, exploring what the data universe look like and watching the evolution there. So in parallel to this evolution of data, there is the evolution of terms. <laughs> and there, there, there's an interlinkage between the available information that's actionable by a manager in portfolio construction and what we can in turn deliver to the client. So if you think back to, to whenever I got started, uh, 15% of the S&P 500 voluntarily disclose ENS data. Uh, last year, it was a bit more than 85%. So we've seen over 20 years of dramatic growth. Uh, a key point to remember is still almost 15% of the S&P still does not voluntarily disclose ENS, or ENS data. So we still have data mm-hmm. gaps. Impact investing is, is, is growing up along this, the, the same parallel. When Rockefeller sort of recoined the term, they weren't inventing something out of whole cloth. We have centuries of history of what we call impact investing now, where it's taking capital, allocating in a way that delivers more than just an investment return, either Mm. through job creation, through opportunity creation, local community development. Um, They just coalesced this conversation around uh, a term that that was actionable, I think, in the industry. And it is distinct from ESG investing in that, uh, at least where I sit, impact investing has to be intentional, it has to be measurable, there has to be transparency, so there has to be associated reporting. Absent those three characteristics, is still ESG investing. And it can't be, impact investing can't be done across all asset classes because there are limitations that are just inherent in what we, we have the opportunity to invest. So, and I saw that uh, post the, the, the time I spent doing the data collection. I joined a, a firm out in Seattle that was focused on fixed income. And um, if you think about fixed income, it's not a unified asset class. There are subsets of allocation models within fixed income. And what you can do varies on the impact in that. So a traditional investment grade fixed income portfolio may have corporates in it, which have very little impact. Um, I, I would argue that impact in public equities and in corporate bonds is, is, is incredibly difficult to achieve. And it's almost a fool's errand. But you move into municipal bonds, which you'll find in individual portfolios a lot, there can be impact. Mm. And there can be impact through local projects in your backyard. There can be impact through uh, CDFI bonds that come to market to support those types of programs, Uh, charter schools, other allocations where in a traditional asset class there are impact. But that's still not true impact. It's they're not doing the reporting. (laughs) It's when you get out of that that you you can get to more. So that, that language part for me, Bryce, um, it's not just the terms. There's also the framing of the conversation. Because if you talk about impact to somebody who doesn't understand the nuance, um, how do you explain it from the ground up? How do you <laughs> let them make that connection to it? You, it? It's about how you frame it in, in their reference points. And I think here in the South in particular, um, 
we don't have the, the, the coastal history. We have a history of impact investing. We have a history of community involvement. We have a history on most of these social issues, but coalescing it into that terminology, just it's, it's not happened as much. We're not Boston or San Francisco where you got uh, the, 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 uh, the groups that are so focused on it and putting it in press all day long. We're, we're far away from that, that part of the country. So, so going from, so from the RIA to kind of what you do now uh, with Invesco uh, more, more directly, how did you, how did you find yourself there? How did, how did you go from kind of more of a, a, a broad approach as an advisor um, managing various assets to kind of to, to narrowing in on this fixed income approach? Um, what, what was that journey like for you? Yeah, so the, the 10 years on the, the research side of that, so I sold my ownership in the RIA, jumped into the ESG research and ratings business and did that for about mm-hmm. a decade. Um, partnership with a gentleman by the name of Mark Bateman, who's now with BlackRock. Um, it was a company called IW Financial that I was working with. Uh, 10 years into that one, Bryce, I was fat and happy in my job. I'm still a fat and happy guy, but I got this call from the, the firm out in Seattle and they're like, they, they, they wanted to determine how to measure impact in muni bonds. So coming back to what I was mm. just describing and they were having difficulty and, and I'm like, that's an interesting challenge because for me, whenever I think about what drives me in this, it is local community. It's that ability to affect change in a way that, that benefits my community, my neighborhood, my region. And municipals were, it, was, it was a great way to do that. So I joined that firm, Bryce, and it was a company called SNW Asset Management, and helped them build out this system. That was about six years ago. And um, just the way the markets work, SNW got bought by Oppenheimer Funds. Mm-hmm. So we ended up, we had roughly, I think about 500 million in, in dedicated ESG and impact assets for Oppenheimer funds, which was a, a pretty good size asset manager. We became the largest ESG block of assets that they had across their whole shop. So it gave me a chance at Oppenheimer to start talking to different investment managers and different asset classes about this idea of ESG and impact. Um, even about the fact that SNW was a certified B Corps and what that meant, having putting purpose above profit. Oppenheimer gets bought by Invesco, I get promoted, um, and I'm in a completely <laughs> different environment. And if you think, uh, so starting out with 3 million and thinking that was a lot of assets, up to 85 million and think that's amazing, that growth, to a few hundred million, and now working in a firm where we're 1.3 trillion across the globe, we represent in our single shop more assets than our dedicated impact investing right now. And one shop able to move the needle. Um, so the role here, Bryce, the, the, what's been entertaining and fun has been that chance to talk about this concept of diff- about across different asset classes, fixed income, alts, private equity, uh, emerging market debt versus emerging market equity investing, about how you do ESG integration, how you do thematic ESG investing, and how we get to an impact investing outcome. Um, that journey has not been without its bumps. Hmm. There are some things that you can't do um, whenever you end up in a large company like Invesco that you could do when you're back at an RIA. I don't talk to retail clients as frequently mm. as I, I once did. Um, so you lose a little bit of the flavor yeah. of, of what makes it so fun to do. Well, and I want to, so on the outcome side, so one of the things that we 
have really struggled with. Uh, and I think Robert and I chatted on my previous episode from uh, from Caprock Group just around the issue around metrics or measuring impact. And so I'm curious from your just history uh, on the data side, um, what what's your hot take on on just the impact measurement in the measurement field, like? You know, everything from, you mentioned B Corps, certified B Corps, the distinctions thereof. You've got the the new impact management project. You've got the global impact investment rating system, IRIS, the taxonomy there yeah. that was developed. Um, I, I am, I'm, you know, do you see this coalescing? What, what, are your, what do you think about the current impact measuring side? Because it, it's, it's pretty confusing and very difficult, cumbersome, if you will, for you know, for entrepreneurs or, or folks to kind of navigate. Do you have yeah. any hot takes on Yeah, that? and unfortunately, I don't think it, I, I, I don't see a coalescence of standards or metrics within mm. the next couple of years. Each of those standards that we're talking about emerged from a different perspective. And there is an emphasis on attributes of impact that there's some commonality, but there are other areas where they, they diverge pretty significantly. And bringing them back is, a little, is going to be a bit hard. For me, Bryce, the, the, the real challenge about impact measurement is the further away from the company you get, the less access that you have to the metrics. So there are asset classes like VC and PE where a venture capitalist, because they have that direct engagement, that direct involvement with the team that may be leading a company, they can get access to and have the conversations that lead to good impact disclosure. Whenever you step out and you're investing through a GP or an LP, it becomes muted. And then you step out of the private placement more into the public markets, it's even more muted. You get layers of legal in between there. Um, you get layers of compliance and oversight, and it gets really diluted. Impact is going to be hard to measure consistently at three orders removed from the investment, in my, in, in my opinion. We are also going to continue to struggle with the absence of data. Uh, we, in general, ESG data, that's the, the thing we don't talk about as often as we should, is it's not a complete data set. If you think about greenhouse gas emissions and, and climate-focused strategies that are out in market right now that are moving towards a net zero or Paris aligned, a significant part of the data that they're acting on isn't actual direct disclosed data. Hmm. It's attributed data. It's estimated data. Can we do that on impact? Some investments, yes, but not across the, the portfolio. And that's why, Bryce, to, to close on that, I, I think that some asset classes are going to be where we get the richness, not just of data, but the richness of outcomes, where we are more directly involved. We can, we can, we can have that guidance. We can have those conversations, that engagement. But you step away, it's going to be hard to do. Yeah, that's... It's interesting you say that because we obviously invest in, you know, we do direct investments. So we have a whole venture strategy and then we also have uh, managed assets as well. Even on the direct side, it, it's tough. You know, for us, we've we've found it's really hard. One, it's it's hard as a as a as an investor to put that burden on the entrepreneur because yep. what they're doing. And so you're asking them now to track and report something something else. And so that there's, there's a cost there. There's a cost of money and time. Um, so, you know, we've gone back and forth. We one at one point we paid the fee for them to do the, the certified B Corp yep. in order to, to get that data. But then it's not, 
exactly what we invested for. You know, like the data set, like you said, is not completely lined up with what they actually are trying to achieve from an impact perspective in the world. So then you end up doing that, but then also having these kind of almost side letters around like, okay, yeah, but also send us this <laughs> because, you know, we care about job creation or a number of uh, formerly incarcerated persons that now whatever, uh, have a job or living at this, um, you know, have this income rate or whatever. Um, so that's, that's what we, we found it to be super, super difficult. And then the difficulty I found is then in conversations with people, because as we activate, like, as I activate people, because, and I'm sure you're the same way with the RIA work, specifically on the customer side, when you're talking to a person, it's not hard to convince them to, I found to, to think about the idea or the, 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 the desire to invest their values because they're their values. It's who they are. It's what, what it's their nature. And so then to all of a sudden say, Hey, you know, you could find that dollar general that not only is great generating great profit, but also is in our state and is doing all these additional programs to help service the community. Holy cow. People just, they, they, it's like they, a light bulb goes off. But then when you go to like compare things or to do that at scale, like the, the, the friend that you had said, I, that's great. That's one company, but we need a hundred. Uh, then, then you need those apples to apples comparisons. You know, how do you look at the dollar general next to the, the next company next to, and like across an entire portfolio. So then the metrics discussion, the data side of it becomes super important and yet what we found and what you're articulating is there's a half a dozen standards out there. <laughs> yeah, and so scalability is going to be the key to breaking the trillion dollar mark for impact investing, right? We have yes. to have solutions that scale that can be reported on. There's the intentionality. Um, but it can't impede business itself. And entrepreneurs, having started a, great a couple point. of companies now, that friction can be problematic as, as you've already identified with some of the things that Access Ventures has done. Um, there's also a muting of the, the, the spice of the impact metrics because a, a number of the metrics that you were describing there, Bryce, are ones that I would say are, those are great metrics to track. But we get three other impact investors. They may be focused on um, health and well-being, or it may be more focused on minority or, or gender diversity. Uh, there are other elements. And by the time you get all of these metrics together, it's this cumbersome encyclopedic set of data requests that you could drop onto a single entrepreneur. And I think that part's not scalable. There are some common metrics that, that maybe we could coalesce around related to economic value creation, equity, um, uh, the stakeholder um, involvement in, in, in decision-making, income inequality um, uh, reduction. But even those are going to be problematic to measure on an ongoing regular basis. Sounds like I'm a Debbie Downer and I'm a pessimist that we just can't get there, but I do think we can. I think um, there are other opportunities. Um, what excites me about developments in this space, um, the VC side of the house, there's more attention on a number of the issues that we're talking about. Um, the fact that 1% of venture capital would go to uh, minority entrepreneurs. Um, every shop I've talked to over the past year are worried about that, and they're working to build solutions to direct more capital into the entrepreneurial ecosystem uh, for minorities. Uh, even at Invesco, uh, as an example, we, we look at the, um, the system challenge, 
and we have um, we're looking for counterparties to trade with on uh, fixed income on IG and gov credit in particular governor government credit who are minority owned so we can help them build capacity uh, mm -hmm. that indirect support and indirect impact so we can build the ecosystem out it's exciting to see that so what we could get out of that is a bit more investable opportunities Additionally, the technology changes that we're seeing. There are a lot of the NLP and the AI progress that we've seen on the ESG data collection can map back into uh, impact metrics just as readily. It won't yeah. be direct disclosure, though. It's going to be implied or, or aggregated data, but it may be actionable, and that's what we're going to need. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the it's great that you hit on the statistics around venture because there's another one that, that's really interesting of late as well, which is that uh, Kaufman has that 83% of companies start with some form of non-traditional capital. Only 1% of companies nationally ever take venture. Um, and so how do we think about creating structures or looking at the system itself to help get more capital towards businesses that are building, growing sustainable businesses, creating jobs, typically with more of an eye towards place because, mm -hmm. you know, venture at some point requires – uh, it's an exit. And yeah. so a lot of time and, and multiple rounds of financing that typically might take them outside of that community. So the companies that actually have a rootedness in place where there is a sense of community and of kind of community identity and kind of ownership, um, it's not a lot of times the venture backed companies. No. And so how do we create financial structures that help support them, whether that's alternatives to equity, such as like, um, revenue-based financing mm -hmm. or profit-sharing models or even old school, I mean, they've been around hundreds of years, but cooperatives, right? Um, that I, I think in the mid-1950s with the kind of the Cold War scare kind of had took a, took a turn or at least had a, you know, an, a lack of understanding as to what they were building, uh, you know, with kind of the emergence of Marxism and the fear yeah. of, of communism. Um, but, but those are beautiful constructs that actually do support communities where there is kind of shared prosperity. Um, are you seeing anybody kind of at the institutional side that's working on some of those strategies, or is that still kind of in the you know the conversation phase? And largely in the con conversation phase um, at institutional level. So at the Invescos and the the Black Rocks of the world, or outside of some of the more direct lending programs that are, are emerging, it's still not going to be at scale. That said, so where, I, where we're doing this interview from today, I, I'm in a co-working space here in Johnson City. So, nice. And I'm surrounded by entrepreneurs, and I'm surrounded by um, people who've started local entrepreneurial networks where they're looking at this challenge on how you invest in the region through um, a number of the strategies we were talking about. That never went away. I, I think we've forgotten as a, as a country that main street and the small business that's down the, the block from you, that's actually the root of our economy. And those are the key employers. And we've forgotten about how many people actually sit around and bootstrap it, get loans from mom and dad or from families and friends and, and bring it in. And it's not VC. It, it is. It's not VC as we talk about it in the financial world. Sure. But it's, it's your friends and family taking a bet that you're going to make it and that one of these days yep. you'll be able to pay it back. I think part of that is going to actually have to go to the policy level, Bryce, not to mm -hmm. the, the finance world. We'll have to have some recognition from um, state or local or even federal government that that type of, uh, of economic activity needs to be supported and encouraged. And uh, we've just not seen that yet. 
the co-op version is an interesting one. And, and yeah, it's something I personally have been exploring, and I know some folks are working on. It's it's an interesting model. Um, there, uh, WeFunder is a is a partner of ours on some efforts. Uh, it's a crowdfunded equity yeah. platform, one of the first. And so the 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 regulation changes that are forthcoming, where you can actually raise up to five million here, and I think the next month and a half um, on plat- on crowdfunding platforms is pretty interesting. Uh, we built um, a uh, community match fund you know, to kind of try to incentivize crowdfunding in Louisville, for example. So we basically um, said, if you're an entrepreneur and you successfully raise $20,000, whatever your terms are, you can set the terms. Obviously, that's what you do on, on a WeFunder platform. We'll come in after you've raised your first 20 with 20. And so we've seen that catalyze. And so literally in the last nine months, I think six or seven different businesses have been able to go on and raise. Whereas before that, there was no awareness. There's awareness of crowdfunding, but not necessarily how to do it. And so we've actually just with some low dollars been able to catalyze kind of just a regional adoption of kind of community-based investing. The other thing that's really interesting um, with that is only a, a third of the deals on a WeFunder, and WeFunder is just one example, yeah. are non-equity based. They already do revenue-based financing mm-hmm. or profit sharing or or debt. And so allowing kind of community, again, community participation, uh, as well as kind of uh, different unique terms. Um, I think to your point, you mentioned earlier technology. I think technology is one of those big disruptors. Yeah. So how can we leverage technology? Because where I think where you sit is a really interesting place, really. And, uh, and I think some people don't understand this, like at the systems level, uh, the amount of capital that that moves or needs to move uh, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, it's it's too difficult. Who Who's that intermediary between, you know, that one point, I think you said $1.3 trillion or something like that. And you know, that mom and pop shop or that dollar general, even how do you, how do you bridge that to do that at scale and to do it effectively? Um, is I think where technology comes in, in a big way. Yeah. And there has to be an incentivization of that because we are talking about what would be characterized in a a portfolio allocation as a riskier allocation. Yeah. Um, because there is no guarantee, no backstop, no index that you're, you're running off of. You're, you're putting your money out there with the hopes that you're going to get it back at the end of the day. And coming back to the roots of impact investments, that sort of is part of the faith part that we're putting into it, right? That what we're mm-hmm. doing through an impact allocation will have an outcome that is beyond just getting returns. And we hope to get our return back. We hope to get our money back. But there is a <laughs> little bit of an acknowledgement that there could be a concession. It's not common, though. Um, I think coming back to technology, uh, the platforms, the, the, the self-funding, the crowdfunding platforms are, are interesting. Um, I think you had a guest uh, a few episodes ago talking about blockchain, and mm-hmm. there is some ability to actually leverage that and some ownership structures and tokenization uh, of endeavors so that we do have the equivalent of uh, equitable division of, of ownership within organizations. But that's going to require minds other than mine to focus on it. Um, yeah, we're actually going to have a, a blockchain fund later in this season uh, yeah. coming on that's looking at leveraging the blockchain for uh, emerging market lending in, yeah. in places like Africa and, and India. Yeah, and you so can apply it, bring that into Appalachia. We still exactly. have an area here in the U.S., Appalachia. You look at the Southwest. Uh, you, actually, you look in the heartland of America, um, the flyover countries, people tend to call it. There's a lot of opportunities that are investable here. Um, as an example, um, we've been working with a, an organization on the Mississippi River called the Mississippi River 
City and Towns Initiative, MRCTI. And it's this set of cities and towns from the headwaters of the Mississippi down to the Delta, Bryce, that these cities and towns all have climate resilient projects that they need to fund. They have infrastructure and programs and reclamation, wetland restoration programs that they desperately need to, to deal with because of the impact of, of being near a river. But there are projects that are so small, they can't come to the municipal bond market with a, hmm. a $50,000 or a $500,000 bond. And there needs to be a mechanism to aggregate these up here in the middle of the country to allow for the investment uh, in, in those types of projects. And we have that with infrastructure. We have that with small business. We have that with farmland and agribusiness. There are a number of channels where I, that sort of a approach is going to have to happen. I will share the other dark part of the, the, the picture that we don't talk about, which is like a company of scale. Uh, the 1.3 trillion we have here at Invesco, uh, roughly 35 billion of that is in dedicated ESG strategy. So it's a, it's 2% or so of our overall allocation. The bulk of what we manage, what we manage, what BlackRock manages, what State Street manages, what any of the big investment managers run, um, these aren't ESG strategies, and there's no pressure to push them towards that. No, again, the incentivization isn't there. And it's not, there has to be a reason for us to make the move. The other thing I think we don't talk about, and this is a, the bifurcation of the market. So we've talked about the coast, right? There is a bias in ESG and to some extent in impact investing towards a more progressive ideal and a set of progressive definitions. And there mm -hmm. are, I've worked very closely with faith-driven investors um, who would be very interested in allocating capital. But if you talk to them about something like climate change, they, they don't want to talk about it. You talk to them about stewardship, about being uh, uh, responsible for future generations, back to the language and positioning, Bryce, they are interested and they'll do it. Yeah. But we have to be aware that that language matters whenever we're talking with that other half uh, of the country who might not be as inclined towards uh, um, some of the terminology that we tend to encounter in ESG and impact investing. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, it's something Robert and I have talked about before, Robert with Caprock, um, just around, uh, I think, part of the whole journey for people is oftentimes just listening to who they are and what they care about. Um, you know, I had Jay Lipman from ethic on a previous season, just talking about, you know, don't go in with, you know, this, this progressive language. Oftentimes that's what we assume in this impact space is that we're all from that vein, given kind of the origins over the last couple of decades of where this conversation emerged. But as we look to kind of the heartland of America, you know, the sleeping giant is sometimes how I've referred to it. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of interest. There's a lot of, there's a lot of movement already would that wouldn't have been maybe defined as impact investing. Like right. you mentioned faith-driven investing. People that have, that have a desire and an interest in doing that, but the only reference point they have is climate action or you name it. And so that doesn't resonate. And so how do we, how do we come to this from our different value systems and structures and to, and to talk about, look, we, we may disagree with, you know, this, this, or this, but ultimately how do we move everyone towards better alignment of who they are, what they have with what, uh, what they're seeing in the world. Um, and so that's going to require, I think a little bit of, uh, to your point, language changing and, and, and just kind of understanding that, 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 that's not a one, a cookie cutter definition of impact is not, all climate action or, yeah. or whatever. So Yeah, and it requires a willingness to listen. And 
and, and yeah. respect that we do have differences of opinion. And yeah. that's not a bad thing. As long as we're yeah. open to the conversation, I think we can achieve movement. Um, yeah, and, and Robert used a really good example one of the times when I was chatting with him, I think he even mentioned on this episode, just around as you talk to someone who cares, like they care about education. Well, other than venture, you're not going to necessarily go out and invest in anything related to education. But the minute you step back and you say, well, what does it mean to have quality education? Well, he talks about like proximity to work, you know, and the ability for a, a mother and a father to actually spend time and after school tutoring. And, you know, so you start to like, okay, distill down listening first, like what does that person care about? And then actually you might actually find that working in some sort of climate work is important because of its connection to, you know, whatever they do care about. And so I think again, to your point, listen and and kind of go on that journey with someone. Um, But that's, that again, I think one of the difficulties that, that you, that you brought up on this episode is just to do that at scale. That's a, that's an addition uh, you know, it's a one by one by one kind of conversation. Listen, work with that person, that client. Uh, but to really do it at scale, we need. How do we multiply that? And so that's where the data comes in, and that's where some of the concern uh, around kind of getting to that trillion dollars. Yeah. Um, with the data and the technology to leverage and, and grow at scale. That's what we're gonna have to. Have. Yeah. So I, uh, I was at a conference last year, so I've asked this kind of common question, kind of going out. Um, and I'm just curious from your perspective because you've been deep in this from the beginning and kind of thinking through this, structuring things. Um, the, the conference and some of the conversations I've heard of late is just kind of impact investing going mainstream, and which I think is, is a good thing, but also has some concern and, and caution. And so I think from, from your history and, and background, as you think about um, this movement, um, for lack of a better f- term, um, what gives you what gives you pause about kind of quote unquote you know reaching that trillion dollar mark, and what gives you hope? Like what 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 is what concerns you, and what what kind of excites you as you as you think about the next several years and and ESG yeah. impact investing or whatever? So the same statements I hear a lot about ESG and impact investing that it's going to go mainstream and eventually it will just be investing, and <laughs> the optimist in me wants to believe that that's the case, but the, the realist says it's not going to be. Um, I think impact investing can go mainstream. The barrier that we have to overcome is the vehicles through which in that type of investment can be allocated. And it's got to be more than community notes. It's got to mm-hmm. be something that actually is a, the equivalent of an ETF or a 40 Act or a fund-to-funds type vehicle that is accessible to a retail investor uh, and that actually has performance numbers that are equivalent to uh, other strategies. Because investors do care about returns and they want something that actually they want to feel good and they want to have an impact but there aren't many that are going to bet their retirement um, on doing that sort of an impact it's got to fit in that way and i think that can be done there there are efforts afoot to do funds of funds of impact funds that are the the more the the gplp restricted investment type vehicles and bringing those into something that will be more retail focused that's underway um so if we can get across that barrier i think we get a bit more access but that's an early stage what gives me hope is that um this is the sort of movement that you don't put back in the bottle it's going to continue and it continues to aggregate the aggregation of awareness will keep moving it 
And if you think about how a consumer trend develops, it starts with the, the individuals who are close. And you take cues from those that are in your family, your friends, uh, your local community on what's appropriate, what's actionable, what you should do. Um, we, we read that, and, and you can call it peer pressure, you can call it whatever, but it becomes normalized. We're seeing that in select areas. If it moves up and you see it from a, a, a position of authority, a person that you respect, you're also more inclined to do that. And we have some very visible, high-profile spokespeople uh, here in the U.S. and globally on impact investing that I think are driving that. If it can tip from that close circle into that mass acceptance where it becomes as common as a mutual fund, as common as talking about an ETF, um, then the sky's the limit. We can, we can blow it off. And I have hope that we can achieve that um, much, much sooner than, than it took us to go from PAX World launching that first fund back in 1971 um, to the record-breaking assets we saw in 2020. To learn more about Glenn Yelton and this exciting work, check out Invesco.com. Thanks again for listening to More Than Profit. And if you've liked what you've heard, do us a favor by subscribing and leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Bryce Butler with Access Ventures. Check out our work at accessventures.org. Thanks for listening.